Hello, friends. My name's Rob Sturdy. I'm the Anglican chaplain at the Citadel, and I'm a friend of the cathedral, and I'm really proud that the cathedral's a friend of mine. Nice to be with you again, even in these strange circumstances. Would you join me in a short prayer before we begin uh, the proclamation of the gospel? Lord Jesus, send the Spirit here. Send the Spirit to the homes participating all over the area. Bless us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God. We ask this in your mighty name. Amen. I bet you know the story of Henry Fleming, the young man at the center of Stephen Crane's classic tale, The Red Badge of Courage. He's a young man, 18 years old, joins the Union Army during the Civil War to impress a girl. I can tell you as the chaplain at the Citadel, that tradition continues as Henry waits for his battle, he wonders whether or not he'll be brave under fire. The reader doesn't have to wait long to find out. Henry, fearing his regiment was about to be overrun by the Confederates' deserts in his very first battle, only later does he discover that the Union actually won the battle, which doubles his sense of shame. Like Henry, a lot of people wonder from time to time what they're made of. A lot of people wonder whether or not they'll pass the test if such a test ever came. If I was pressed into service, would I show courage or cowardice? If a man's life was in jeopardy, would I intervene or look the other way? If my boss sexually harassed a colleague, would I speak up or would I keep quiet to keep my job? If my minister mismanaged funds, would I confront him or keep pious silence? All this boils down to would I do the right thing at the right moment when the stakes are high? Most of us hope to do the right thing. Some of us might not know whether or not we would do the right thing. Others might confidently say they'd rise to meet the challenge. But the truth is, you never know what you would do until the moment comes. Peter, the man who wrote the letter you have been studying these past few weeks, was a man who always knew he would rise to meet the challenge. In fact, he said as much on numerous occasions. But as you may know, when Peter's moment came for him to find out what he was made of, Peter's courage deserted him. And as a result, he deserted Christ and even denied knowing him. Like the character in Stephen Crane's story, Peter was covered in double shame. But that's not the end of Peter's story. And that's what I want to talk with you about from 1 Peter chapter 5, especially verses 6 through 11. What Peter tells us in this section of Scripture is not only a sober warning and sound advice, but I have long believed it to be an autobiographical reflection upon one of Peter's lowest moments and what God did for him when he was at the very bottom. We begin at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter encourages his readers to humble yourselves, and that should be enough to grab your attention because Peter presents humbling as a choice. Very often we're not humbled by choice. We are humbled by something else, a circumstance. When I graduated from the Citadel, my wife and I moved to England and we both studied at Oxford University. I had graduated with honors from the Citadel. I felt that I was pretty smart, and sometimes I still think that. 
All that changed when I got my first graded essay back from my professor. I got a 58. I felt totally deflated. All my confidence disappeared. And I remember thinking to myself, you never should have come here. You don't belong. If that essay was a test of my abilities, I flunked it objectively. And I was humbled that day. But I wasn't humbled by choice. I don't know about you, but most of the moments where I've gained humility or I have been humbled have not been moments I have chosen. Losing to an opponent on a sports field or getting a bad performance review from a supervisor, receiving a frightening diagnosis, amongst other things, can be humbling experiences. Why can they be humbling experiences? Because these are the kind of experiences that make us feel very small and inferior and vulnerable. And these things seem to impose themselves on us, leaving us with little say in the matter. Peter gives us a vision of how we can take control of these moments. Don't let the, mumble, don't let the moment humble you, he says. You humble yourself. Not under the humiliating grade of the professor or the accusing number on the scoreboard. Not under the supervisor's review or the doctor's fearful diagnosis. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What might that have looked like? Well, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus warned Peter that his moment was coming. Peter, very directly, was told he would flunk the test. And he could have humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Help me, he could have asked. Defend me, he could have prayed. Lead me not into temptation. He was taught to pray. And Peter tells us that there are good reasons for these kinds of prayers. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because he cares for you. Now, this is not what Peter did. Peter refused to be humbled under the mighty, caring, and careful hand of God. And he chose to be humbled under the destructive, pitiless, and accusing hand of his own cowardice. Lord, he said, I'm ready to go with you even to prison and death. Now, he thought he was, but we knew he wasn't, and Jesus knew as well. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You know the rest of the story. Jesus is arrested, and by the time the rooster crows, Peter has been humbled by his thrice denial. The wet tears on the cheek tell the story of the shame. And so the man that writes this letter has learned something the hard way. And as the letter continues, picking up at verse 8, there's no sense of arrogance in the way this man speaks to us. There's not even a healthy self-confidence in what Peter says next in the letter. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter is a man devoured. And he speaks as a man devoured. He knows that the proudest are the easiest prey. C.S. Lewis, he said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The tragedy in Peter's case 
is that he looks down on things and people. He's not able to see God above at the moment of his temptation. And because he's not able to see, he's not able to call upon. And not being able to call upon, he's left to his adversary prowling like the roaring lion. And he's devoured. This man also was with him, said the servant girl by the fireside. But Peter denied it, woman, I don't know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Peter said, man, I am not. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him. Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion. Peter, once upon a time, was easy prey. And he was a devoured man. There's a difference, I think, um, between getting a 58 on the essay, learning you're not as smart as you thought you were. There's a difference between that and failing the moment when your highest ideals are put to the test. The first can bring about perspective and humility, sense of shame. I think for me, it just said, you need to get your act together. But when our highest ideals are put to the test and we break, which I have done more than once, the most severe form of self-judgment falls upon us when we're at our best. When we're at our worst in an effort to maintain a sense of ourself and who we think we are, we can begin to search to justify the failure And in my experience, not only of seeing this done, but of doing it myself, such searches always find what they're looking for, a justification for why we did what we did. And we miss the valuable opportunity to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. What does the Lord Jesus think of such moments? What does the Lord Jesus think of us when we run from the battle? What does the Lord Jesus think of us when our integrity fails, our courage crumbles, our commitment shirks its responsibilities? We don't have to wonder. Because what Jesus said to Peter on that night was, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows Peter will be a deserter when the battle is engaged. He knows Peter is Private Henry Fleming, who will flee through the woods when the sound of the bullets crack and the air fills with smoke and the enemy advances. But I have prayed for you. What good are the prayers of Jesus? I have prayed your faith would not fail. Pay particular attention to what Peter says next. When you have turned back, strengthen the brothers. What good are the prayers of Jesus? Well, they are prayed with sympathy, knowing our weakness. They're prayed with power that we will not fail completely. All of us have an experience of failure, but the prayers of Jesus are that we would not fail completely. They're prayed with a vision that we would turn back. They are prayed with a purpose that having 
failed and learned to depend not upon the strength of our convictions, but to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we would strengthen the brothers. With all of this in mind, listen to the words of Peter beginning in verse 9. Resist him, your adversary, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world after you've suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. Peter's exhortation that humbles us with the knowledge that our ideals and our values, our convictions and our best intentions are insufficient for the spiritual adversary we face. But Christ can and will enter after you have suffered a little while. And Christ will restore you. Christ will confirm you. Christ will strengthen you. Christ will establish you. That's an exhortation Peter has written from personal experience. Peter suffered a little while in his denial. And Peter suffered a little while when he learned of his friend's death on the cross. And Peter suffered a little while in the confusion of the resurrection reports. Peter suffered a little while when Jesus asked him thrice for his thrice denials. Do you love me? And at just the right time, the God of all grace, who called Peter to his eternal glory in Christ, at just the right time, it was God who restored Peter. And it was God who confirmed Peter. And it was God who strengthened him. Shortly after he deserted the front lines, uh, Private Henry Fleming is accidentally struck in the head giving him a bloody wound. His fellow soldiers thought he'd been wounded in battle, and they considered him a hero. Even though he was a coward, it was being considered a hero that gave him new courage. And in the words of the book, it rid him of what Crane called the red sickness of battle. Henry rejoined the lines, Unarmed, he carried the flag and he helped drive the enemy off the field. The restoration and confirmation and strengthening by the God of all grace is not just about the forgiveness of sins. It's not just about an eternal home in heaven. If that's all it was, it would not diminish our praise an inch. But it's more than this. It's about fashioning us into men and women who once upon a time shirked our duties, who once upon a time were humbled through cowardice, once upon a time who were ashamed by sin, but at just the right time under the power of God are given new courage, new power, and new humility to stand where we once would have fallen. The grace of Jesus Christ makes us better men and better women. Let me close with a few words of application. For Christians, Peter's reflection on his own failure and restoration has a lot to teach us about how to handle our own failures. 
there's a story about Peter at the end of his life, and I don't know if it's true, where the persecutions were coming to the church again, and Peter went on the run just as he had before. In the story, Jesus meets Peter at the dock just before he's about to get on a boat, and Jesus says, will you deny me again? Peter turns, and he goes back into the center of town, and what's not up to dispute is that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same way that his Lord Jesus had died. The Peter at the end of his life is a different man at the beginning, and he did not let the shame of the beginning of his Christian journey dictate how it ended. Jesus Christ dictates the ending, made this a courageous man. Jesus Christ can dictate your ending. Grace is more than the forgiveness for past failures. It's power to stand in future trials. There is so much to say on personal past failures, on personal future trials under God's grace, but I hope you will forgive me for drawing attention specifically to one past failure and one potential future trial. Not wishing to pick scabs or undress old wounds, but a past failure was identified in my home state of Alabama by Dr. King in a letter he wrote from jail wherein he expressed disappointment in the church in general and the white church specifically for a failure to show up. It's a past failure. And though some would not wish to grant it, it is a past failure for which there is grace from the Lord Jesus. There is grace for future trials as well. The trial is no longer future, but it seems present. The needs remain very much the same. And the great fear I have thinking on a past failure is, am I fit for the day of standing? Peter was sympathetic to the suffering of Jesus. No doubt he wished it had not happened. He wept in the corridor at a distance. My question is very simple. It's for reflection. Has God's grace restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established our churches sufficiently for the day at hand? It's a question I would ask you to not respond to, but to pray about, reflect over, and think. The issues are complex, but they are real. And I wonder if we are able to resolve not to weep sympathetically at a distance, but peacefully shoulder to shoulder, what has the God of grace done in the churches of this country since the 1960s? For non-Christians, all people, not only Christians, can cast their concerns on God because he cares for all people. These are anxious times full of concerns. The first step of many people on their spiritual journey towards friendship with God is prayer. You can speak openly, you can speak honestly, you can speak earnestly, you can speak angrily about your fears to God, and you should not think that past failure will prevent him from hearing you in this present moment. The same grace open to Peter in his failure is open to you in yours. You might even discover that the same Jesus who said, I prayed for Peter, is also praying for you. 
and his moment of confirming and strengthening and establishing you might very well be at hand. Amen.